Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Before my retirement two years ago, I taught American literature to college students for the better part of 40 years. During those years, certain passages came to stand out to me, either for what they said about the human condition or for what they said specifically about America and what it means to be an American. I'll be sharing some of these memorable passages in the episodes of this podcast. Dr. J's American Passages will post new episodes the first and third Wednesdays of each month. On the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month, I'll be posting episodes of Dr. J's Shakespeare, which I hope you'll also seek out. After today's introductory episode, each episode will be about 15 or 20 minutes long, sometimes shorter, but I hope not often longer. But, you might well ask, what do I mean by what it means to be an American? There is no single answer, yet we still feel that the term means something. It's a question all Americans reflect on, and this is true of the authors we find in anthologies of American literature. Each provides at best a partial answer, like those blind men describing an elephant. But writers have discerning vision, and from their partial answers can begin to emerge a sense of the whole. My expertise is in the writers of the past, from the days of the first European visitors to this continent through the writers of the 19th century, and it's mostly from the writers of these times that I'll be drawing, though I will also include a few more recent writers. My students would often begin my courses skeptically. How can writers from so long ago tell us anything about our world today? But the world we live in today didn't spring into existence when you woke up this morning. It has origins, not in the mists of times long, long ago, as is the case with older societies and cultures, but in a more recent past that we can come to know, and thus we can gain insight from our earliest days into what America is today and how it came to be. So what then is an American? One of the first writers to attempt an answer to this question was born in France in 1735 with the name Michel-Guillaume-Jean de Crevecourt. Crevecourt received a classical education at a Jesuit college and then as a young man traveled first to England and then to New France, where he served in the French army in the war Americans called the French and Indian War, participating in the battle on the plains of Abraham outside Quebec City in 1759, in which the English forces commanded by General Wolfe defeated the French forces commanded by General Montcalm, a battle in which both generals died. After the British victory, Crevecourt wandered down to the English provinces, became a naturalized British citizen, changed his name to John Hector St. John, and eventually settled down to the life of a prosperous farmer in New York's Hudson Valley. Though Crevecourt sought to portray America accurately, in letters from an American farmer, he presents himself somewhat fictionally. He calls himself James the Farmer, 
rather than John the farmer, much less Michelle the farmer, and places his farm in Pennsylvania rather than New York. He says that his grandfather immigrated from England to America and that he is thus a third-generation Anglo-American, when he was in fact a first-generation French-American. These fictions are in themselves American, as they represent quite literally the possibility in America to create oneself anew. Crevecourt wrote these letters between 1769 and 1776. Finishing the last, Distresses of a Frontier Man, just as the Revolutionary War was getting underway. During the war, and after much difficulty, Crevecourt journeyed to England, where these letters were published as a book in 1782, becoming an unexpected bestseller and giving many in England and Europe their first informed idea of Americans, who and what they were. Crevecourt answers the question, what is an American, chiefly by contrast. The American is not a European, Crevecourt declares, because in Europe he would be poor, whereas in America he is, if not rich, then well off. The institutions that keep the masses poor in Europe, the nobility, the Catholic Church, lordly landowners, don't exist in America. Here everyone is his own man. Let's listen as Crevecourt tells of this in the letter the third, titled, What is an American? He begins with a description of what a visitor from England in 1767 will find. From letter three, what is an American? Here the visitor beholds fair cities, substantial villages, extensive fields, an immense country filled with decent houses, good roads, orchards, meadows, and bridges, where a hundred years ago all was wild, woody, and uncultivated. It is not composed, as in Europe, of great lords who possess everything, and of a herd of people who have nothing. Here are no aristocratical families, no courts, no kings, no bishops, no ecclesiastical dominion, no invisible power giving to a very few a very visible power, no great manufacturers employing thousands, no great refinements of luxury. The rich and the poor are not so far removed from each other as they are in Europe. Some few towns accepted, we are all tillers of the earth, from Nova Scotia to West Florida. We are a people of cultivators, scattered over an immense territory, communicating with each other by means of good roads and navigable rivers, united by the silken bands of mild government, all respecting the laws without dreading their power, because they are equitable. We are all animated with the spirit of an industry which is unfettered and unrestrained, because each person works for himself. If a visitor travels through our rural districts, he views not the hostile castle and the haughty mansion contrasted with the clay-built hut and miserable cabin where cattle and men help to keep each other warm and dwell in meanness, smoke, and indigence. A pleasing uniformity of decent competence appears throughout our habitations. The meanest of our log houses 
is a dry and comfortable habitation. We have no princes for whom we toil, starve, and bleed. We are the most perfect society now existing in the world. Here man is free as he ought to be, nor is this pleasing equality so transitory as many others are. Now Krevkur turns to our question. What then is the American, Krevkur asks, this new man? He is an American who, leaving behind him all his ancient prejudices and manners, receives new ones from the new mode of life he has embraced, the new government he obeys, and the new rank he holds. He becomes an American by being received in the broad lap of our great alma mater. Here individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men, whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. The American ought therefore to love this country much better than that wherein either he or his forefathers were born. Here the rewards of his industry follow with equal steps the progress of his labor. His labor is founded on the basis of nature, self-interest. Wives and children, who before in vain demanded of him a morsel of bread, now, fat and frolicsome, gladly help their father to clear those fields whence exuberant crops are to arise to feed and to clothe them all, without any part being claimed either by a despotic prince, a rich abbot, or a mighty lord. The American is a new man who acts upon new principles. He must therefore entertain new ideas and form new opinions. From involuntary idleness, servile dependency, penury, and useless labor, he has passed to toils of a very different nature, rewarded by ample subsistence. This is an American. The immigrant does not find, as in Europe, a crowded society where every place is overstocked. He does not feel that perpetual collision of parties, that difficulty of beginning, that contention which oversets so many in Europe. There is room for everybody in America. Whatever be his talents or inclinations, if they are moderate, he may satisfy them. I do not mean that everyone who comes will grow rich in a little time. No, but he may procure an easy, decent maintenance by his industry. Instead of starving, he will be fed. Instead of being idle, he will have employment. And these are riches enough. Benjamin Franklin, at about this same time, also wrote about America and Americans for a European readership. Though they wrote from different perspectives, Crevecourt, a French immigrant, living and working in a rural setting, Franklin, an urban third-generation Anglo-American, they echo each other in many ways, perhaps none more significant than their emphasis on the equitable distribution of wealth in America. The rich and the poor are not so far removed from each other as they are in Europe, Krevkur writes. Similarly, Franklin, in his Information for Those Who Would Remove to America, wrote, The truth is that though there are in America few people so miserable as the poor of Europe, 
there are also very few that in Europe would be called rich. It is rather a happy mediocrity that prevails. For both, this is the central characteristic that distinguishes America from Europe. But was this true then? Though Crevecourt and Franklin have different backgrounds and experience, both are of what Crevecourt calls the middle provinces. As Crevecourt turns to other parts of America in later letters, a different America is seen. In letter 9, description of Charlestown, thoughts on slavery, on physical evil, a melancholy scene, Crevecourt looks at the American South. He compares Charleston in the Carolinas to Lima, Peru. For this comparison, he places Charleston in the north, as in the northern hemisphere, but after that, he uses north and south the way we use these terms today. Both Lima and Charleston, he declares, are places of great wealth, Lima from mining and Charleston from agriculture. In both cases, the wealth was produced by slave labor at a terrible human cost. Here is Crevecourt's account of Charleston and its wealth. Compare it to his description of the American farmer. From Letter 9, Description of Charleston, Thoughts on Slavery, on Physical Evil, a Melancholy Scene. Charleston is, in the north, what Lima is in the south. Both are capitals of the richest provinces of their respective hemispheres. You may therefore conjecture that both cities must exhibit the appearances necessarily resulting from riches. Peru abounding in gold, Lima is filled with inhabitants who enjoy all those gradations of pleasure, refinement, and luxury which proceed from wealth. Carolina produces commodities, more valuable perhaps than gold, because they are gained by greater industry. Charleston exhibits also on our northern stage a display of riches and luxury, inferior indeed to the former, but far superior to what are to be seen in our northern towns. The inhabitants are the gayest in America. It is called the center of our beau monde, and is always filled with the richest planters of the province, who resort hither in quest of health and pleasure. The round of pleasure and the expenses of those citizens' tables are much superior to what you would imagine. Indeed, the growth of this town and province has been astonishingly rapid. A European in his first arrival must be greatly surprised when he sees the elegance of their houses, their sumptuous furniture, as well as the magnificence of their tables. Can he imagine himself in a country the establishment of which is so recent? But, Crevecourt continues, While all is joy, festivity, and happiness in Charleston, would you imagine that scenes of misery overspread the country? The ears of the inhabitants of Charleston by habit are become deaf. Their hearts are hardened. They neither see, hear, nor feel for the woes of their poor slaves, from whose painful labors all their wealth proceeds. Here the horrors of slavery, the hardship of incessant toils, are unseen. 
and no one thinks with compassion of those showers of sweat and of tears which from the bodies of Africans daily drop and moisten the ground they till. The cracks of the whip urging these miserable beings to excessive labor are far too distant from the gay capital to be heard. The chosen race eat, drink, and live happy, while the unfortunate one grubs up the ground, raises indigo, or husks the rice. This great contrast has often afforded me subjects of the most afflicting meditation. On the one side, behold a people enjoying all that life affords most bewitching and pleasurable, without labor, without fatigue, hardly subjected to the trouble of wishing. With gold dug from the Peruvian mountains, they order vessels to the coasts of Guinea. By virtue of that gold, wars, murders, and devastations are committed in some harmless, peaceable African neighborhood where dwelt innocent people who even knew not but that all men were black. The daughter torn from her weeping mother, the child from the wretched parents, the wife from the loving husband, whole families swept away and brought through storms and tempests to this rich metropolis. There, arranged like horses at a fair, they are branded like cattle and then driven to toil, to starve, and to languish for a few years on the different plantations of these citizens. And for whom must they work? For persons they know not and who have no other power over them than that of violence, no other right than what this accursed metal has given them. Strange order of things. O nature, where art thou? Are not these blacks thy children as well as we? On the other side, nothing is to be seen but the most diffusive misery and wretchedness, unrelieved even in thought or wish. Day after day they drudge on without any prospect of ever reaping for themselves. They are obliged to devote their lives, their limbs, their will, and every vital exertion to swell the wealth of masters who look not upon them with half the kindness and affection with which they consider their dogs and horses. Kindness and affection are not the portion of those who till the earth, who carry the burdens, who convert the logs into useful boards. This reward, simple and natural as one would conceive it, would border on humanity, and planters must have none of it. So wrote J. Hector St. Jean de Crevecourt before the Revolutionary War. In other letters, Crevecourt wrote of other regions of America, New England and its Puritanism, the seacoast with its fisheries and whaling and worldly knowledge, the backcountry frontier with its violence and guns and antisocial spirit, I asked my students which of these letters most represented what America is to them. They agreed that the letter, What is an American?, represented what America is supposed to be. But they also surprisingly agreed that Charleston represented what America is today, and not just or even primarily for the racism, but for the division of wealth and labor. I assured them that in their lives they could achieve that happy mediocrity Franklin spoke of, but they didn't feel sure about this. They do feel that perpetual collision of parties 
that difficulty of beginning, that contention which Crevecourt says doesn't exist in America. Would Crevecourt and Franklin be happy with the America that exists today? It's a good question. Immigrants still come to America to find the world that Crevecourt and Franklin praised because it is here, the opportunity to make a better life for themselves and their families. But these immigrants are no longer from Europe. Are they welcomed into the lap of their new alma mater? Were those freed from slavery after the Civil War welcomed into the lap of their new alma mater? Have their descendants ever been made to feel welcome? And for those Americans whose ancestors from Europe were welcome, do they today feel that they count, that they matter, that their lives are theirs to shape if they are now poor or if they are now struggling to just remain in that happy mediocrity? Do they feel that their happiness, their plans, their talents, their hopes matter? Or are they struggling with discouragement and frustration? Krevkur's Letters from an American Farmer remains valuable today for how well it presents what America should be, and for many still is, while also acknowledging that there are other American realities that are far from what America should be. Discussion today of America's future needs to begin with recognition by all that both are true, the good that America has been and is, the bad that America has been and is. From such an initial agreement, we can then talk together as Americans about getting America to where we'd like it to be. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.